Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour. It's another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. There is all sorts of crazy stuff happening in the Linux community. And uh, I am. It's it's interesting because... Having joined with the folks at Destination Linux, it has given me, uh, I think, a better insight into Linux. It really has. Because it means daily communication with a bunch of really passionate Linux users. And uh, it's gotten my ear closer to the ground of of what's happening. Now, this is the weekly show where I answer all of your questions. We're going to continue to do that. However, I've decided I want to start expanding. It's not like this is, you know. Shocking and out of the blue, but I've, you know we want to we want to continue to expand the show and continue to offer newer and some might say crazier things. And I want to get back into doing some tutorials. I want to get back into helping people get started with Linux, learn to Linux, and, and and expand what they're doing with Linux. And so, as part of that, what I want to do is uh, I want to start it. I want to put put some stuff together for a YouTube channel. Um how-to tutorials, walking people through technology, things like that. But what I want is for you, the community, to uh, offer some insight and some advice on what you'd like to see. And uh, how you know this is a hot-button issue. I get So I get telegrams from people all the time. And don't ever shy away from sending me a message. I mean, try and pay some attention to the, the time zone that I'm in. So I'm in central time. So if you send it to me at 3 in the afternoon on your time, and it, and it hits me at 11 at night. That's kind of frustrating. But for the most part, don't shy away from sending me telegrams. Certainly don't ever shy away from sending me an email live at asknoahshow.com. I get requests all the time for various different kinds of tutorials. And I also work with some really intelligent and talented people that, you know, work for fairly large open source organizations. And so I'm having some communication with them and saying, hey, could we offer something like this to the community? So right now, I guess what I want to do, and I'll, I'll put this up at a straw poll, and uh, I'll throw it in the chat room. We'll have a link to the straw poll in the chat room as well. I'm just going to throw this in here real quick. What tutorial, if we were going to do a tutorial, there are two that I've been, there's a lot that I think we're thinking about doing, but there are two that have kind of risen to the top. People that have asked, how can I find out more information about that? Now, the first is something we have not talked about at all on the show, yet it's been requested numerous times from people in the community, and that is zero-tier VPN. So if you'd like to learn more about zero-tier VPN, if you'd like a tutorial, maybe we have to do an episode about it first so we can introduce people to it and then later on go back and uh, do a tutorial on it. That's option one, and I'm, I'm more than willing to do that. I... uh I don't personally use zero-tier VPN, but I've played with it enough to, to be able to set it up and be able to walk you through setting it up. And the uh, chat room is asking, what does zero-tier zero VPN offer private internet access? Well, it's, it's open source, for one. 
And so there's it. There's a little bit of a self-hosted component to it, I suppose, as as opposed to you know, private internet access is literally just a service. But if I was going to set up a VPN system, I'd probably do it a little bit differently. Uh, anyway, that is option one. Option two, which I'm a little more privy to, and Brent uh, Brent Jervis in our chat room says, which by the way, you can join at chat.asknoahshow.com. We've got a really cool new interactive chat client that you can use there. It's all web-based. He asks, what about WireGuard? Now, we're going to have J- Jason Donafield on the show. He was going to be with us uh, on our on our week-long tirade of episodes. He wasn't able to join us then. Um he had a work commitment that popped up, but he's going to be joining us, and uh, and we're going to get some more insight into WireGuard. That's another place that we could do tutorial, and something I would feel a little bit more comfortable with. But the second thing I've been asked about, and one that a technology, Linux technology that I've been playing with quite a bit, is Rivendell. Now, you might remember that we had Fred Gleason, lead developer and creator of the Rivendell broadcast appliance on the show a couple weeks ago, probably one of my personal favorite episodes that I've ever done. And uh, since that time, I've spent a lot of time talking to Fred, and he's been giving me some advice on how I can improve the show from a technical standpoint, and uh, different things that we can do, and different ways that we can set things up. And I've been following a lot of his advice, and it's proving to be extraordinarily valuable, and I feel like I have found a diamond in the rough. I feel like there's a lot of things in Rivendell that are solving problems that podcasters, broadcasters have been fighting with for years and uh, and this guy Fred has done it and he's done it with an open source broadcast appliance. So if anybody would be interested in having a, you know what I'm going to do because there's now three people in the chat room that have said uh, zero, uh, that, that they'd be interested in, uh, in WireGuard. So if you'd like a WireGuard tutorial, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to add that. I'm going to create a new straw poll and I'm going to add that to the list too. So if you would like, I'm going to throw this in the chat room. We'll have a link to this poll in the show notes as well. So if you are listening to this episode on the rerun podcast dot slash one hundred three, check out the show notes there. There'll be a link. Vote, vote for uh, vote for WireGuard. If if you want to see a tutorial on WireGuard, and maybe what we'll do is uh, we'll combine a tutorial with a uh, with a uh, with a brief expl- explanation from one of the developers. At Kapovic. I think that's how I pronounce it. Asks if I'm feeling all right. Yeah, I am. I, uh, I, I'm, I, I, yes, I am. I'm feeling just fine. Just trying a slightly different style. That's all. Um, so anyway, join us. You can, phone lines are open as always. one 855 That's 855-450-6624. You, you can email us live at asknoahshow.com. And I have started to carve out a section of the show specifically for feedback. So if you are emailing the show and you've been frustrated in the past, that we've not answered your question or maybe not responded as promptly as we would like to understand that going forward, we're going to try to make a better effort about concentrating on feedback. Cause I do think it's an important aspect of the show. I think it's a way that, um, that you, the listener can, can give back to the show and a way for people to, uh, to be able to kind of direct the show. So we're going to put a big, uh, larger effort on that. Red Hat eight, the beta is out. And they are doing some really fantastic things that uh, deserve some recognition and some things that I think that their competition is not doing and has not considered. One of the things that Red Hat 8 Beta has done is what they're calling application streaming. And uh, I have my own differences with how they name that because it makes it sound like it's something that it's not. Really doesn't 
I don't know, stream anything, so to speak. But the idea and the problem that they are solving is absolutely something that system administrators fight with. I myself fight with this on a probably a weekly, but certainly a monthly basis. We have an open ticket right now in our system that is dealing with an issue that application streaming would solve. And here is the fundamental issue. A server in a production environment oftentimes has more than one application. In fact, almost always has more than one application running. Very rarely do you just run, you know, uh, Apache, for example. Oftentimes that Apache server is tied into a database server or it's tied into some other subsystem on the, on the computer. And when you do that, when you build a server that's a culmination of two different products, both of those products have to work together. The problem is that each of those applications have a different development team, a different, different development cycle. They have different schedules that they work on, different funding models. And so ultimately what that leads to is some applications move faster than others. And when you have two software packages or two software stacks that must work together to form a cohesive whole to serve a given need, and you have a drastic difference in workflows or funding or any of those things I just mentioned, what you find is it works at a given date, and then a couple weeks or months or years later, one has drastically evolved faster than the other one, and now the system as a whole doesn't work. A great example of that is PHP. PHP, there are some applications that use one specific version of PHP forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, amen. And then there is a whole other branch of applications that use the newest version of PHP. So if you're Red Hat, if you're CentOS, or if you're Ubuntu or Canonical, and you're trying to decide which version of PHP to ship, if you ship the latest one, you're going to break the applications that use the same version forever and ever and ever, amen. And if you use the newest one, then you're going to break, well, if you, uh, other way around. And then if you, use the, if you use the older one, you're going to break the applications that rely on the newer version. So what Red Hat has done to address this is what I think is, quite frankly, brilliant. There are certain software packages that need to run in user land that need to be on basically every system. So if you have GNOME, for example, as a desktop environment on your Red Hat or CentOS install, then there are certain packages like the file manager for GNOME, Nautilus, that must be present. And they're not optional. You have to have a file manager if you're going to have a graphical desktop. So they have, they have taken a collection of these packages that are required. And I'm not saying that Nautilus or GNOME is required because obviously not every server installation has a graphical environment. In fact, I would say that the vast majority of production server environments do not have a graphical environment. So they take those absolute necessary packages and they put them into a repository that they're calling base. And the base is the core repository. It's the, it's the core place that your operating system gets packages from. We basically all agree that if you're using, in my case, CentOS 7, that you're always going to have these particular versions of these particular packages in this particular repository. So we can group those together. We set all those aside. Everybody's going to use these. Now is where things get to be a little bit mm, sticky. 
because everybody has optional applications that they run on top of their base operating system. Those applications that are optional applications still running in user space are going to run in the app stream repo. And essentially, the way that the app stream repo works is it utilizes a technology called modularity, which essentially establishes virtual repos inside of the same physical repo. So much like you would have a single physical host that you would then divvy up into multiple virtual hosts or multiple virtual machines from one physical machine, in the same way you can utilize the modularity technology to divide a single physical repo into multiple virtual repos. Now, some of you are asking, why would I want virtual repos inside of a same physical repo? No, that doesn't make any sense. Why not just make multiple repositories? The answer is, as to why you'd want to do that, because you can point a machine to one single repository, but pull different versions of the exact same software down from that single repository. So if you are on the, I'm on the old PHP track because that's what my uh, database software uses. So I always want to use the newest version of my database software XYZ, but that always relies on PHP 5.6 or whatever the, the, the version is that, that it uses. You can tell the machine, I want you to go down this specific track of software and always pull from the latest version of this one and the semi-latest version of this one. Now, fast forward a year, two years, whatever, and this happens to me literally all the time, absolutely dealing with this very issue right this minute. Database software comes along and says, hey, bro, we decided we're going to update, so now we're going to use the latest version, yo. Go ahead and just uh, grab that latest version. And then you say, well, wait a minute. My entire machine is configured to pull from this older repository. Now what do I do? Welcome to AppStream. You go in and tell it, hey, now I need you to go find the latest version because this is what the version of the software that this database thing is calling for. And without reconfiguring your repo, without having to mess with any updates, without breaking anything, it just seamlessly says, okay, I'll step over and step over to this other virtual repository. And it'll pull from that. Then they have a third repository. And I don't have any evidence to, to, as to why specifically they are doing this. Nobody has from Red Hat has come on and told me, hey, this is why we made this decision, but I can guess. I can guess because literally four weeks ago or five weeks ago, I was doing an episode and somebody wrote into the show and said, hey, where do I get this specific version of the software? And the reason, of course, that they couldn't find it is because it is in the extra, it's in the, the EPL repo, which is like, the official repo that's not really official, but is kind of official when you need it to be official, but is not official when the legal ramifications come in for it being official, in which case it's not official. It's highly confusing. The supplemental repo is a repository that contains software that maybe Red Hat doesn't necessarily want to officially support. Maybe because it contains special licensing, and so it becomes difficult to distribute with any computer. But a lot of users are going to use that software, and thus we have to have it available. So a great example of something that I would imagine might wind up in the supplemental repo would be something like Skype. Lots and lots of people use Skype. Why? I don't know. Because there's better video software out there, Zoom. Better audio software out there, Mumble. But be that as, as it may, people use Skype. 
So the question is, uh, what do you do with these pieces of software that everybody is going to want to use if you're going to sell a, you know, production-ready workstation uh, operating system? How are you going to deliver the software that your users want without winding yourself up in legal trouble and without making it a huge, you know, pain in the tuckus? Well, the answer is the, su is the supplemental repo. I think this is drastically drastically going to change the way that people are able to utilize CentOS and Red Hat. Because I think what they're doing is they're fundamentally solving the repository problem that we have had for decades. And that there has been no good, clear answer. And even from a structural standpoint, it is difficult to explain. And this is coming from a person that has tried numerous times to explain the repository structure to a client that really doesn't understand Linux at all, much less the software packages that are created for Linux but not made by Linux because they're not really associated with the company that made the operating system. That it's just it, it has been a ridiculously confusing infrastructure up until now. So this modularity, this AppStream ability, is I think this is really interesting, and uh, you know. They are going to continue to innovate. I think that the, you know, they've got somewhere in the neighborhood of high hundreds. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the number is, but high hundreds of developers on GNOME, on staff. You look at what any competitor has, and it's nowhere near that, as far as what their paid developers for desktop Linux is. And I think that explains, or at least begins to explain, why Red Hat is becoming the, well, it has been the standard for servers, but is becoming the standard on workstation-like systems. Now, I think that puts an interesting, not twist, but I think it puts, an, I think it gives us an interesting perspective, right, of where CentOS and Fedora are going. I think that when you look at what CentOS set out to accomplish, and now Red Hat owns them, and what Red Hat accomplishes, and then where exactly is Fedora's place? And if you monkey around with Fedora just a little bit, monkey around that model to make Fedora the testing bed for Red Hat, then what really is CentOS's base? Because prior to the developer license, where there was no a way to obtain a Red Hat license without paying money, you couldn't test Red Hat in your environment. You know, Then Scientific Linux and CentOS and those things, they made a lot of sense. You could try with the free version, then upgrade, so to speak, to the to the to the paid support version. But with the developer license that Red Hat offers, and you can get into all of that for zero dollars, you have to start asking your question. You start having to ask tough questions. Well, why would I use CentOS when I could just use Red Hat proper? And then in that case, if everything does work out, and most of the time, let's face it, it does. It's just a simple phone call to Red Hat to slap a licensing key in there and have layered support on top of that. So we'll see where all of this goes. Um, they have a couple of other things, too, that I've I played with just a little bit. They have uh, Composer. Um, and the idea of Composer is a it's essentially like an administration tool that allows you to deploy images to hybrid uh, hybrid infrastructure. So I, th you know, that's just, again, that's, that's Red Hat's way of saying, Hey, we're going to be the leader in hybrid cloud solutions. So we're going to be that we're going to be the go-to name for that. So this is just their way of saying, Hey, if you're an experienced Red Hat 
uh, admin. Here's a tool for you. Um, they have a new volume management file system. Uh, that's uh, They say it's more efficient and easier to manage. I've not played with it, so I guess we'll see. Uh, we'll see how that uh, how that actually stacks up. And then thirdly, and this isn't directly related to the release of version eight, but just more actually with my interaction with Mr. Fred Gleason, I've started to play with XFCE on Red Hat uh, a lot more. Despite what I've, you know, I, I I understand and recognize that Red Hat has a lot of buy-in into the desktop world, specifically GNOME, from their in-house developers. The issue is, I have one studio machine here that's running CentOS with GNOME, and I still continue to have some issues. And the problem with that is, it's our main on-air studio machine. It's the literally the thing that puts the content out on the air. And in some of the studio changes that I've made, the audio now passes, the audio from my microphone actually passes through that machine. So I literally can't afford to have some problems with GNOME. So I've talked to Fred, and I said, Fred, you do this for hundreds of radio stations across the world. How do you deal with this? And he said, very easy, I get rid of GNOME. And I use XFCE. I don't have that problem. So I re-imaged our machine and uh, put XFCE on there. And I have to say, you know, it's really fantastic for a utility machine. No question about it, I would not want to use XFCE as my main daily driver. But as far as a machine that just has to sit here and run the studio all, essentially all day, that works fantastic. And uh, it's worked so well that I've actually decided to keep that machine online. And You know, usually we take it down after the show and uh, I restart. That also gives me the ability to kind of work in the studio and do all those kinds of things. Well, with the new way that Fred has us set up, I have the ability to leave that machine running 24 hours a day, seven days a week and spit content out over the stream and take the, and, and take the studio essentially offline, put the studio into what, what we have called studio bypass. And so the, the content goes straight out to the air. So that creates another question and just, it doesn't have to be a big formal thing, just live at asknoahshow.com. If you would ever find yourself cl going to asknoahshow.com, clicking on the play button and just listening to the rerun of the show, maybe we throw our buddy Brad Schmidt on there too in the rerun. Maybe Destination Linux, if they let us use their, kindly let us use their content since, hey, I contribute, right? Um, you know, we just get a little rotation of some some uh, some reruns. That's something that would be interesting to you. If some, if service that you'd utilize, let me know, live at asknoahshow.com. While I'm talking about Destination Linux, if you, haven't, if you haven't usually checked out the show, check out this week's episode, guys. It's fantastic. We talked about if you're the kind of person that really likes hardware and really likes digging into... Uh, to what the latest and greatest is, my buddy Ryan on the show—that's that's his that's his thing, right? He he looked at the Linux infrastructure, he looked at the Linux ecosystem, and he said, "Hey, everybody out there is saying, yeah, I tried Linux and it runs really well on this old P4, and Linux runs really really well on this five-year-old laptop, and it brought new life back to my crappy MacBook that never really worked right." That's typically what we hear about Linux, and he said, "Well, what if we change that paradigm a little bit? What if we looked at what can Linux do?" on the best money or the best computer that money could buy. And that's how Ryan looks at Linux. And uh, obviously him and I share a passion about some of those kinds of things. And so if you want the, if you want your questions answered on the tried and true stuff, that's ask Noah. But if you want the latest and greatest bleeding edge, it just came out and did somebody try Linux on it? That's my friends over at Destination Linux. So make sure to check out this week's episode. It's absolutely fantastic. We talked a little bit about the Red Hat application stream, but we also talked about 
the new um, 590 that came out from AMD and uh, how Team Red is totally screwing up on Linux and where we are with that and where we expect to be. So won't ruin the episode for you, but just a, just a small plug if you'd like to. Check that out. SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, essentially the highest court, not essentially, it is the highest court in the United States, is making an interesting ruling this week. 30 years ago or so, there was a lawsuit brought because Microsoft included Internet Explorer with Windows, and the Netscape folks were not very happy about that. And so uh, they said, hey, that's, uh, that's, that's not cool that you make the operating system. Just because you make the operating system doesn't mean you get to choose every piece of software that goes on there. How can you and you alone decide that Internet Explorer is the application that has to ship with Windows? And, uh, and so they had to allow them to and people to install Netscape Navigator on there. Now, uh, I guess full disclaimer, that was a little bit before my time. I obviously was in like second grade when that happened, so I was not uh, third grade, whatever. So I, uh, I, I was not, you know, didn't pay much attention to the case at the time. But 30 years later, it looks like we're revisiting a very similar issue. And the issue is that Apple runs a marketplace for their iOS devices, the Apple App Store. Famously, the store that is not just for selling apps. Okay? The argument is that because Apple controls the Apple App Store, and because, unlike Android, and basically every other mobile platform that you can flash a different operating system on, you can't install a second App Store on your phone, the argument is that Apple has a monopoly over applications on their environment. Something that, by the way, I have criticized Apple for relentless. That they don't allow any apps to be on their infrastructure, only the ones that get Apple's blessing. Up to and including police departments that pay tens of thousands of dollars to custom write a uh, DUI checkpoint app. And Apple decides that they don't like that decision. And so they pull the app off of their uh, their infrastructure, and now all of the Apple hardware that this police department purchased becomes useless. Never mind what politically what I think about that the the whole DUI checkpoint thing. The point is that Apple is telling a user what they can and cannot do with their own device that they purchase simply because Apple doesn't agree with their decision. Apple went to court and said, "Hey, we are not running a monopoly. We are running an app store. We're running a marketplace." And just like Sears or Walmart or Kmart can decide what they want to charge for the products that they put in their store, and just like they can decide which products go in their store, hey, we should be able to make those decisions on our own ecosystem that we put together and we run. By the way, we actually don't tell apps or we don't actually set the price. The developer sets the price. All we do is skim a little bit off the top. We say, hey, if you're going to sell, you're going to make some money off of us. We're going to take a little bit off the top for helping you do that because we provided you with the infrastructure that you needed. We went and we went and, and, and sold the devices to these people and ex- used our marketing money to build hype around this crappy infrastructure that we have. So if you're going to sell an app on our piece of junk phone, we should be able to scrape a little bit of money off the top. We're not the ones that actually set this price. 
So if the argument here is that we run a monopoly because we're overcharging, well, hey man, go look over there at those app guys because they're the ones that are overcharging. We're just the middleman. So the question is, the first question to you and I guess will be to the Supreme Court is, who is responsible for overcharging if overcharging is in fact a thing? Because remember, the average price of an app on the Apple App Store is just over a buck. Now that translates into about $11 billion, that's billion with a B, $11 billion in profit to Apple. But, well, I just, I don't know if that's profit to Apple or if that's total money generated, but it's $11 billion is the figure that was quoted to me. But who is responsible for setting that price? And then the second question, arguably the bigger question, legally speaking, but that has less of an effect for us here in the Linux and open source world, is who actually gets to sue Apple and who gets that money? Because in the history of suing people, especially when it comes to monopoly, you can't have there's you can't have a class action lawsuit. That money doesn't go out over the class action people. It's just the you know you'd have to have the individual app developers would have to go sue Apple, and then that would have to come back. So do I agree with Apple's decision? Absolutely not. But is the outcome of this potentially going to be amazing? Yes. Now, the interesting thing is that we have a weird political climate in this country, in the United States, in which I guess power and assertion where where it shouldn't be is exerted over our legal system. And so the Trump administration has decided that they are in favor of Apple and uh, are putting are putting political pressure to try to get the courts to swing one way or the other. Well, not one way or the other. They're trying to get them to swing in support of Apple to throw the lawsuit out. Now, there are lawsuits all over the place, all over, you know, you know, essentially every week. But this is one of those lawsuits that it has massive, massive implications for us in the open source world. Because what has been our criticism of iPhones, iOS, and Apple at large for the longest time? Well, they're locked down. They're closed. It's, it's a closed infrastructure. It's, it's, uh, it's garden walled. So you can't get to it. And you, 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 there can be no real innovation because it's all locked up. Man, having a second app store, having the ability to have another software player come in and say, hey, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have a different ecosystem there for you. That'd be a really great first start. It's not quite, well, you can load, you can sideload Linux or you can sideload Android onto your iPhone 6S, but it's a really good start. So as always, the Ask Noah Show, we'll, we will do hours of meticulous research, stay up to the minute on what's going on with this case and bring that information to you at asknoahshow.com. Of course, download it at podcast.asknoahshow.com. But I was, I was shocked to see that, that case gain as much traction as it did. I thought for sure that would just get thrown out and they'd say, hey, listen, you know what? It's Apple's, infra- it's Apple's infrastructure. It's their phone. It's their store. Uh, numerous times before, the court has stood by Apple and said, you can choose what goes in or not goes into your app store. And uh, nobody, I don't think there's a real driving force behind a second app store in Apple. I think for the most part, the fruity users are pretty happy with their, their, their nonsense. So I, I really didn't see the case getting any traction. Boy, it sure has. Top of the uh, top of the tech headlines the last couple of days. Uh, my Even my non-techie friends are like, hey, did you hear about that Apple thing? So we'll continue to watch it. Get open phone lines this hour, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. And I see we've collected a couple people in our interactive mumble room. Hey, mumble room. 
Hello. G'day, g'day. Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for being here. Just feel free to to pipe up or uh, well, actually, I, I guess ping me in the chat room and we'll we'll flip you on there. But again, uh, 855-450 No, it's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Cyber Monday. Now, this episode is being recorded on Tuesday, and obviously, uh, we'll rerun drastically after Cyber Monday. But uh, there were a couple of really cool deals that were available on Cyber Monday and things that I bought just to play with here on the show. Review them, I guess, as it were, or uh, or just give you some insight because they're things that I wouldn't ordinarily purchase to, to, to play with because they're usually so expensive. The first thing that I purchased because it was on sale was an NVIDIA Shield for $134 from Target.com. Now, here's the really fantastic thing about the NVIDIA Shield and why even if you can't get one at a Cyber Monday deal, why you should go out and buy one. It is the most ridiculously overpowered device that you've ever seen in your life because it's designed as an Android gaming console. Now, I'm not a gamer. I will no scope you 1v1, but I'm not a gamer. I just like watching media. Turns out, if you take a gaming console and throw Kodi on it, which, by the way, is available in their native app store, so you don't have to sideload anything, you don't have to hack anything, you don't have to root anything, you don't have to plug it in, type you know weird magical incantations into your, into your terminal, you just literally put the thing on the internet, open up the app store, and you download Kodi, and you have a, uh, a world-class media player. Now, you pair that with either Brasserio to rip the entire DVD, including the menu structure and all of that, or you pair it with Make MKV and just pull some uh, 1080p rips off Blu-rays or DVDs, you can either store those on a hard drive connected to the NVIDIA show because it does support a Samba server, or you can do what I do and set up a free NAS box down in your basement, and then you put some Western Digital Reds in there, set up a Samba share or an NFS share, and share it out to your NVIDIA Shield running Kodi. And now your kids can watch Frozen over and over and over again without ever scratching the disc, damaging the disc, losing the disc, fighting over the disc. And so we have set that device up in our house. And it, it, I mean, I, I was a little resistant at first, mostly because I just didn't want a bunch of Android devices running in my house. Not much as I rag on Apple, I'm actually not a huge fan of either Android or uh, iOS. Android is a, is a security nightmare iOS is a freedom nightmare. So neither of them are great, but uh, Android is the lesser of two evils in my humble opinion. I bought one of them on a friend's recommendation, plugged it into my TV in my living room. I was just blown away, you guys. I mean, the thing is just absolutely fantastic. It is the best media player money can buy. So then I bought a second one that I put in my RV and uh, plugged a little one terabyte SSD into it and started taking that around with me everywhere I travel. Turns out that's a great way to travel because now the kids can watch all their movies, all their TV shows. Cody will sync up with my server at home so I can copy media from the uh, from my home server out to the little local 2 terabyte SSD that's plugged into the device in my RV. And this guy, this guy, every week he calls me. It's uh, unbelievable. Um, so it, uh, it, it, it does an absolutely fantastic job. Went and bought one for every TV in the house. And uh, since then, we've gotten more TVs in our house, and I've put one here on the studio and one in my office and stuff like that. This Cyber Monday deal with the ability to get the NVIDIA Shield for 134 bucks, 100, yeah, it's 134 bucks, meant I bought another one that I travel with now, and 
also one that I uh, also one that I, I put in my office. So if you have an Amazon Fire Stick, if you have an Apple TV, if you have a Roku, I have tried all of these. And by far the best device ever created for media playback is Kodi on top of the Nvidia Shield. Now even if you don't like Kodi or even if you don't have a lot of local media, you can use other things like Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, we got, I bought my wife as a birthday present about her CBS All Access so she can watch the new Star Trek because she's a Star Trek fan. And what I've learned over time is that even though I don't like cloud-based media and even though I don't watch cloud-based media and even though I don't spend a lot of money on cloud-based media, gosh, it's sure nice to have that ability when you want the ability to just watch a, watch a, watch a thing. And I can always go buy the local thing and then rip it and then store it on my NAS, and now I've got that media forever and ever. But it's nice, just that particular night, there's a movie I wanted to watch, wasn't available, was available on Google Play, couldn't find another alternative source <clears throat> to, 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 uh, to acquire it. And so, bought the, rented the movie on Google Play for a buck ninety nine, and watched the movie. And the thing is, at least it gave me some, some insight into if I actually wanted to spend the effort into go obtaining this movie, which actually was a great movie, it ended up purchasing it on eBay and now it's ripped into my collection and I have it forever. By the way, that movie is called uh, talk to me, which if you, uh, if you work in radio or have ever worked in radio or ever thought about working in radio, it's the true story about PD green, absolutely fantastic movie, not one to watch around the kids, but an absolute a lot of language in it, but it's an absolute fantastic movie. So check it out. Uh, if you're interested in a, in a movie recommendation, again, open phone lines, one 450 Noah. that's 855-450-6624. The email live at ask Noah show. Dot com. Make your voice heard. Become part of the program. James joins us from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Yeah, I couldn't remember which shows were discussing the, because I got to set up a, a remote logging capability for a real noob to Linux that doesn't understand anything more than click on here, barely. Sure. And I couldn't remember what shows you talked about the remote logging and stuff, so I was like, uh just ask him. Yeah, there you go. The phone lines are open every Tuesday. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm quite predictable that way, James. Um, we well, got a couple of solutions. There are a couple of ideas for you. The first and the one that I use all the time because it is just the most reliable, straightforward solution that requires no firewall configuration. Like you said, it is completely idiot-proof. You literally click on the machine you want and it opens up. And that is Simple Help. Now, Simple Help is a lot like TeamViewer, except it's all self-hosted. So, you decide when you want to increment the version, if ever. You decide which machine and where that um, central server is located at. Simple Help also supports the ability to monitor heartbeats on your local machines. So if you have a client and they have 200 some machines, it will go ahead and let you know when a certain threshold or any of the machines have gone offline. So in a couple places, I don't care if they, because they, who knows, they turn some of them on, they turn some of them off. That really doesn't help me. But what I do want to know is if we've lost internet to the entire place. Now we've got other little appliances that we can use to monitor WAN connections. But if we've already got simple open place, which we do at every client we support, we literally just log into that machine, go into the configuration say, Hey, shoot me an email. If the threshold, if all these machines go offline, let me know. Simple Help does that. We've got the ability to gather machine statistics. I can click on a machine, find out how much hard drive space is in use, how much RAM is in use. I can use their access control uh, 
function to limit which machines certain people can get access to. So I'll give you an example. Um, we no longer syndicate our show with JB, but uh, Alan Jude, our, our good friend that uh, runs the, the BSD Now program, he does. And uh, we've got our Simple Help infrastructure in place all over Jupiter Broadcasting so that he can go and click in there, open up one of their machines and start and stop his show. Now, I not that I don't trust Alan because I completely do, but it would be a screen cluster for him if he could see all, you know, whatever, 12,000 machines that are, in, are enrolled in our system. So we just go into Simple Help and we restrict his group so that it just shows machines that are registered to JB. Absolutely fantastic piece of software. The other nice thing is the master node or director or whatever you want to call it, the machine that sits up at the server, all it does is broker a connection. So it monitors the clients that are out there. The people, uh, your technician requests a connection. The little broker machine goes and says, okay, you use this UDP port, you use this UDP port. Okay, you guys are connected now, I'm going to step off. Great thing about that is when I'm working inside of an environment, there's multiple times where we support clients remotely. Even if I'm on site, oftentimes I'll just, I'll pop myself down. I'll set myself up in kind of a little working environment in, in an office. And if somebody needs help, even though I could walk down the hallway or up the, take the elevator up or wherever it is they are, I'll just use simple help to remote into that machine and take care of the problem that way. Faster, cleaner, more easier for me. And I've, I've got everything just kind of situated the way I want it. When I'm doing that and I'm local on site, I get the benefit of going over a gig or 10 gig LAN. If I'm outside, it will automatically just take the best course or create the best connection it can over the internet. So Simple Help is my first choice. If you don't want to use Simple Help, you've got a couple other, oh, the, the last thing about Simple Help that I really like, it is a screen scraping software. So it literally shows you whatever it is the user is doing. So you can show a user how to do something. And if they have something up on their screen, they know that you're working on the computer, all those kinds of things. If you don't want to do that, the second option you have is you can use something like Tiger VNC. Now, Tiger VNC is brain dead simple to set up, and I'll make sure to include a link for you in the show notes on uh, on Tiger VNC. But um, pretty pretty straightforward to set up. The downside to tar tar Tiger VNC is it requires you to do some work on the firewall. You're going to have to go into the firewall, and you're going to have to forward some ports and do those kinds of things to be able to get it to work. But if you forward, I th it's really just a single TCP port. You forward a, forward a port, set a password, install Tiger VNC. I, if I was using VNC, I'd probably use a VPN too. But you get all that set up. That's a great way to control the machine. Now, in my experience, at least on CentOS, when you use VNC, it creates a second user session. And so you don't see whatever it is the user is doing on their machine. It's a, it's a second, uh, it's a second uh, session, I guess, as it were. And so any work that you do, you're going to have to close out of those applications and then have the user open them back up. And of course, if they're, you can't, I wouldn't recommend that you both work on it at the same time. Same is true for a newer piece of remote software called X2Go. Now, X2Go utilizes and leverages the fact that our display server, or X server, can be separated from the X display client. And so you can run the X display locally on your machine, the X server remotely, and you can connect the two. Now, X2Go probably has the best performance of the three solutions that I'm offering you. However, X2Go is even more complicated to set up because in addition to the ports, um, you also have to, you've also have to set up the, uh, the, the, the backend, the thing that connects to it, the X2Go server, and you've got to set up the X2Go client. And, um, I, 
I am being told in the chat room that X2Go can see the current session, but I have not found a way to do that. If you have a user logged into the computer and they're using it and you, and an X2Go session is requested, I am not aware of a way for the X2Go client to take over that session. The only thing I'm aware of that X2Go can do is they can take over a existing X2Go session. But as far as I'm aware, it can't take over a, uh, a, a local session that's in progress. Now I could be wrong about that. And if I am, let me know at live at asknoahshow.com or join our interactive chat room at chat.asknoahshow.com. I could be wrong on either of those two things. If I am, I'd like to know. Um, but in my experience, that has not been the way that X2Go has functioned. Live at asknoahshow.com. That is our email. It might change here in the future. We're redoing some of our, in, our email infrastructure for 2019. But if you have a question, if you have feedback about the show, if you have something you'd like to ask us or something you'd like to tell us or a suggestion, we'd invite you to do so at live at asknoahshow.com. Jack M. did that. Jack says, hi, Noah. I've been listening since you first started. I've never missed an episode. I commute each day, and unfortunately, I can't call when you're on the air. My question is, do you know of any good online Linux groups that I could join where I could just chat with some people with similar interests? I live in a small town in Montana. I don't have a lot of options locally. I've joined a few groups, but they seem to only be question and answers and not much else. Basically, I just want something kind of like an online lug that I can feel apart and meet some cool people. Thanks. I love your show, Jack from Montana. Well, thanks, Jack. The Ask Noah community exists outside of this show. And I'll be honest with you. I have talked to other content creators that get upset of the uh, what I call the Kleenex um Situation. The Kleenex situation is this. Everybody knows what Kleenex is. Everybody uses a Kleenex, but people don't really care about the brand Kleenex. At least most people don't as much as they just care about the fact that they want to use a facial tissue. And so if you Kleenex size something, it becomes a de facto standard. It's just what we call that thing. You may or may not be aware of the actual brand or the you know ethos or anything about the actual company. You just know that you like to use Kleenex and that, that, that for some, it does offend some, some content creators. Some of them look and say, listen, if we have a resource for the show, I want the resource for the show to be used for the show. I want people to be aware of the show. I want people to utilize it for the show. And if they're utilizing that resource outside the show, then they're of no value to me because they're not providing a resource to the show. That's one way to look at it. And I do understand that there is a, there's, that's some valid criticism in that, um, you know, if you spend money to create something to support your uh, your endeavors, obviously you would like it if there was a return on that investment. But that does honestly, it does not bother me at all. I don't care if the Ask Noah show gets Kleenexized, if I could coin a term. And to put my to put my money where my mouth is, that's exactly what's happened with the small business group and the Ask Noah photography group. I did not start either one of those Telegrams groups. One of them used our branding. One of them did not. Doesn't bother me at all. I fully, I've mentioned it on the air here. People have, you know, I've not gone so far as to, you know, like do an episode about it. Well, I think we actually did do a small business episode, but I don't, you know, there's not like links to all these groups in the show notes every week or anything like that. But people that have asked and said, Hey, I have an interest in open source photography. Where can I find that group? Well, here you go. It's, it's a thing. Somebody has popped that up. I think that's really cool. So the ask Noah show community, the ask Noah show telegram group, it's called the Ask Noah Show Telegram Group, and you can join it at telegram.asknoahshow.com. However, it is not about the show. I post one once a week, about 30 to 45 minutes before the show, and say, hey, 
we're going on the air. So if you have any questions or if you want to join the conversation, here's how you can do it. And other than that, and we might sometimes, and this is not even every week, it's just episodes that I think are particularly interesting or particularly well done. We'll post a link for people to download the episode in the group. Other than that, we don't talk about the show, really. Every, sometimes people will post something in there and they'll say, hey, you should do an episode on this. But the group, telegram.asknoahshow.com, at almost a thousand members now, is just, it, it, I would say it's probably the, I'm trying to look here, it, it, it is the most popular Linux group on Telegram, at least of the groups that I'm in. Um, so I, that would be my first suggestion to you. Join the Telegram group because there's discussions in there all the time. Now, I'm not saying there aren't ever any questions and answers because certainly people do come there and say, hey, I joined the group because I have this question about this thing. But by and large, it is a community that exists completely outside the show. And maybe someday we'll do a Telegram group. <laughs> Michael Tunnell, our, produ our, our producer and owner of Tux Digital and my co-host on Destination Linux says, it's not a show, it's a social experience. So if you'd like a Linux social experience and not a show, join telegram.asknoahshow.com. The second resource I would point you to is Destination Linux. Now, this is going to cost you a little bit of money, but it's like super cheap. Destination Linux, at the end of every episode, does something very, very cool that I've kind of played with, but they've really honed in. And it is just the Hangout section. It's not... It's not recorded. It's not published. It's not, it doesn't go anywhere. It is literally, there is no benefit to Destination Linux, the show. It is much like the Telegram group in Asnoa. It is quite literally just a, uh, just a hangout, just a place to come and hang out. There is a free client that you can download for Linux. You can join with video or just audio. And you, we just sit and just, we just have a good old time talking about Linux. So just imagine a virtual hangout where you sit down with some pizza and some pop and talk about Linux. That's what happens. And it happens every uh, Friday afternoon about the time that we wrap up doing Destination Linux. And I said it's going to cost you a little bit of money. Here's why. They only uh, give access to that group if you are a paid Patreon subscriber. So you have to, you have to subscribe to their Patreon group to be able to get access to that hangout. Or you'd have to you know, beg one of the, I don't know if they have like a feedback thing, you'd have to beg them and say, Hey, I'm really hard up on some money. Is there any possible chance I could join? Um, because I'm out of employment or whatever. They're pretty nice guys. So maybe they'd work something out with you, but it's a buck. It's like, don't stop at Starbucks, uh, one out of every four times. And, and you'll have more than you'll, you'll, you'll get yourself covered for a month. So that would be my suggestion for anybody that wants to, that wants to get an online experience or join a, a a Linux group, but they don't have access to a Linux group. Um, that has, and it's, it's, it's interesting because when I first joined the show, they, nobody told me that that was one of the things that they did after the show. And it's, it's quickly becoming my favorite part of the whole show because you get people from all over the world that have all sorts of different experiences on Linux and they're able to come in and say, Hey, here's what I learned or here's what I've been playing with, or here's what I've been doing. It's given me ideas on, on what to do on the show. Um, Kapavik in the, in the chat room says, what time does it take place? I don't mind supporting the show, but I might not ever be able to join the group. Yeah. It, um, you know, it, it depends because it, it honestly, it depends on a couple of things, how many interviews we have, what time those interviews are scheduled, what time we actually end up getting started if we've had any technical delays, but a good rule of thumb would be around six o'clock PM central. So that's, uh, let's see, that's going to be 4 PM Pacific and what, uh, 7 PM Eastern somewhere around there. But again, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to tell you a hard static time. 
because it really does switch and and flip around quite a bit. Um, like this week, we didn't even start we didn't start the show until three thirty, so obviously it was closer to six thirty when we got done. But you can join the group and watch and and uh, and watch the show being recorded, which is not a bad idea either. Uh, again, live at AskNoahShow.com. That's where we'll take your feedback. JL writes in and says, I use a MacBook 2017 for work as mandated by my company. I have a USB-C dock that lets me plug in my display, keyboard, and mouse so I can effectively use the MacBook as a desktop while at my desk and not traveling around with it. On all other competitors than the MacBook, I'm all Linux. I have a Galago Pro latest model that I use as my daily driver. It's running Pop! OS 18.04, I would like to use the same USB-C dock for it as I use with the MacBook. Unfortunately, the laptop doesn't see the display attached when I plug it in. I've tried other docks and none of them work. They aren't Mac-specific, but rather generic hubs. This one is a Kingston Nucleum, for example. I've also tried loading the DisplayLink driver just in case that's what it wanted, but in addition, I've tried 18.10, hoping a newer kernel would have support. No luck. Based on my inability to get this working, I'd assume that displays over USB-C simply aren't supported. However, I've read that some people, while searching Google, have gotten it to work. I'm not sure if that's possible. There's a lot of unclear information on what is required for USB-C docks to work in Linux. In fact, there's almost no information that I could find at all. Have you had any luck with these? This is one of those situations where we have the social answer and the technical answer. And it's a situation that I don't like but um, th this is kind of where we're at. Oftentimes, there is a technically correct answer and a technically superior solution, and then there's the solution that is accepted widely by the social world, and despite the fact that the social solution may be technically inferior, we end up going with the social solution, and this absolutely applies to docs. The technically superior answer is to use a Thunderbolt dock because Thunderbolt, the technology, connects directly to the PCI bus. And so obviously you're not expending USB resources. You have a direct connection to your motherboard and you can take advantage of all of the bandwidth and, and, and all of those kinds of things. And so when you apply a device directly to the PCI board, it's like plugging in a PCI card. It's a way more effective, much technically superior way to connect uh, peripherals to your computer. Here's the problem with Thunderbolt docks. One, they are incredibly finicky in my experience. I have had amazing luck with the ThinkPad Thunderbolt dock. Seems to work on every device I have tried it on, up to and including a MacBook. I didn't try it on a MacBook, but a friend of mine who works at Red Hat uh, plays with a MacBook, and he has confirmed to me that that exact ThinkPad Thunderbolt dock does work with the MacBook. So that is option one. However, you'd have to verify that your Galago Pro has a Thunderbolt connection, and I'm not sure that it does. So this is where the social part takes over. Every rinky-dink device under the face of the sun supports a USB interface. The, even the, these cheap $250 Chromebooks, when they came out, they had USB-C. Not Thunderbolt, but USB-C. So it's USB-C. It's, it's a USB bus underneath. And I'll include a link to a previous episode where we explain this, but there is a, there's a, difference, there's a difference between Thunderbolt, USB, there's a difference between Thunderbolt, USB-C, and a USB-C bus behind USB-C. The Type-C is just the connector. You can either Type-C can either be connected to a USB bus or a Thunderbolt bus. And if Type-C is connected to a USB bus and you're trying to use a Thunderbolt dock, it's not going to work. However, if you have a Type-C connector that's connected to a Thunderbolt 
that's connected to a, a Thunderbolt connection behind the U the Type C connector, and you plug a USB Type C dock into it, that will work as well as a Thunderbolt dock will work. So the social answer is, and what I have seen used widely up to and including amazon.com uses this solution exclusively. Um, if you're familiar with Sanford healthcare, they've got hundreds of thousands of remote employees, uh, that have, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, but certainly thousands of employees that have, uh, that have this solution in place. And it is the Dell WD 15. Now it is a USB C dock, but it works flawlessly with every device I have ever plugged into it. Every version of Linux going all the way back to 1204, I think I've used it on a 1204 machine, works absolutely flawlessly, works with the MacBook, works with my ThinkPad that I'm using, works with Kubuntu, Fedora, Arch, you name it. It works with everything. And uh, so if you want the go-to standard, a 100% ask no guarantee that it will work with your system, the Dell WD-15, and I'll have a link for that included with you in the show notes. Now, there's a lot of people out there that are going to say, that is a technically inferior solution because it runs off of the USB-C bus. And that is absolutely true. But at the end of the day, Google ain't going to release a Chromebook with Thunderbolt in it, at least not for 200 bucks. And so all of these manufacturers that are coming out with Type-C, we're all going to go Type-C, but the vast majority of them, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, probably going to be a USB bus behind it. So if you want the go-to answer that's going to work every single time, get the WD-15. By the way, using it right now here in the studio, I have audio devices connected to it. I have three displays connected to it, USB mice, keyboard, mouse. I've got a printer in my office. All of them work, no problems whatsoever. So I, yes, there is a technical limitation on what you can pass through this USB bus, it doesn't act, practically speaking, doesn't affect anything. So don't worry about it. Go ahead and buy one. You won't be disappointed that you did. I, uh, we're as we go into 2019, we are revamping some of the administrative things that we do on the show. And one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to structuralize and, um, put some infrastructure around the giveaway things. You've probably heard me on the ear tell somebody if they call in and I'm, and, and they're having a problem and they're, I can tell that they're frustrated with Linux and they need some help. Uh, I wish that there had been somebody to give me some help. And so I try to be generous and offer help back to those people. And so I'll say, we'll send you one for free. Now, here's the issue. If it's an ele if it's a digital component, like when we do our, our giveaways for our Amazon gift cards and stuff, every once in a while, somebody doesn't get an email or something like that. And they just speak up and then we, we make sure we straighten it out. Of course, you've heard the calls where they call in and, you know, we let them know ahead of time that they've won and all those kinds of things. But the physical products are, are presenting us with a much more challenging environment. We've had everything from we've dropped something off at the post office only to get it back weeks later. And they say it's an undeliverable address. And, of course, we have sometimes we'll collect the, uh, the address, but we have not collected the phone number. Sometimes we had that. We've been able to straighten it out. All that to say, if, you have, if, you, if, you, if I promised to give you something and you didn't get it, make sure to email us live at asknoahshow.com and just say, hey, you know what? couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, whatever, I, I won this thing or I was told that I would get this thing and I never actually got it. We don't have like a master list, but we want to make it right because certainly we want to live up to our word. So if you didn't get something, let us know. I know for sure there's at least a couple things still sitting in the room that that uh, that have not gotten shipped out for one reason or another. Hey, did you know this episode is available as a downloadable podcast? Check it out at podcast.asknoahshow.com. The Ask Noah Show will be live again next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to Sarah, our call screener, better producer. Have a good week, everyone. We'll see you next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central.